You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Well, good morning, church family. I'm glad they gave us that little uh, postlude there, Wade. I needed a moment. The seminary that Wade and I went to, uh, Dr. Gray Allison, was the pre- president emeritus of it. And he, I remember way back when, my first uh, chapel service there, man, we had a time of praise and worship. And he said, uh, you know what? You clap for a performance, but you say praise God for a blessing. How about it, church family? Praise God. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, would you please take it and turn with me to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 4 is going to be our uh, springboard this morning into what I believe it is that God has placed on my heart to share with, with you fine folks here. Now, if Esther is not familiar to you, maybe her story is about how God used her to intervene and uh, to save his people from Satan's uh, tragic plan, really his plan to try to uh, thwart the Messiah coming in generations on down the line. Uh, If you're looking for it in your Bible, just turn to the book of Psalms and then back up two books there and you'll find yourself in the book of Esther. As you're doing that, I have an obligation to share with you. Uh, It's something that we active duty individuals, especially chaplains, have to do. If I were preaching in a service at Paris Island or on a base, in a base chapel, the expectation would be truth in advertising and you would know who it was standing before you and that it was uh, going to be conducted in accordance with the manner and form of that individual's faith. Since I'm in uniform this morning here sharing with you on Memorial Day and Wade, thank you for the invitation. Uh, It's my obligation to share with you that my endorser is the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And what I share with you this morning is going to be in manner and form uh, of that faith tradition and in no way, shape, or form establishes anything for the U.S. government. Is that good? Got that little paperwork out of the way, didn't we? Now are you ready to get down to it? All right. Well, thank you. I can't tell you how much Christy and I are overjoyed to be here with Wade, Claire, his family, and your church family. Wade, you scared me there for a moment. I thought maybe somewhere in that uh, introduction you had changed your last name to Adams and that you were going to want to take out a loan a little later. (laughs) Where I'm from in Georgia, we call that taking somebody to raise. You know what I'm talking about? But Wade has been a, a godsend in our life too, and you're blessed to have him as a pastor. I knew something was special about him. He may not remember the exact time, but we took that truck He said, let's go fishing. We rode down into the backwoods of some clear cut somewhere. And I thought, you know, is he taking me down there to get rid of me? What is he doing? What is he going to do? And he says, we're going to catfish. And he put out a pole and never touched it. Instead, he wanted to know where the snacks were that Christy had uh, packed for us. And he sat over on the bank while I tried to fish. And then he asked me, so how do you know when God's calling you to the ministry? That was what, Wade? 25, 26 years ago now, and here he is today. So church family, thank you for uh, placing yourself under his stewardship before the Lord as he leads and preaches and teaches God's word to you. Amen? Amen. 
So Christy and I are, are so thankful to be here this morning. Uh, I share all that, of that with you because one of the greatest lessons we've learned in over 30 years of ministry is the ability to spot God's activity in someone's life. As a matter of fact, God wants to use even the least of these. I'm a glaring example of God taking an ordinary and working through that person to do something extraordinary. And God has that in store for you too, friend. Because God delights in using ordinary people. God delights in using ordinary Janes and Joes to accomplish his greatest works with and through. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever shared that with you, or maybe you're here this morning and you need to be reminded of that today. But some of the greatest moments in our ministry has been watching God take those who we've been called to disciple and realize that God wants to work through them too. That his work is not only for those whom he places upon some type of ministry's pedestal in front of other people. Maybe Esther's story, if you've read it before, has you asking questions. There are a lot of questions I ask after reading her story. But one of those is, what about my Christian walk? What about your Christian walk? Maybe you're wondering... Could God ever truly use me too? Or is his work only for those that you place in a super class of Christianity? You know, like pastors or deacons or elders or missionaries and the list goes on and on. Are the Billy Grahams of the world and God rest his soul. But are they the only ones called to impact this world for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, if you're under that impression, please let me take a few moments this morning to wipe away any confusion that you may have about who God desires to use. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23, excuse me, 26 through 28. And as I read this description, you listen and ask yourself, well, do I check the box? 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28 Brothers, consider the time of your calling. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and despised things of this world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. How would you do? Did any of you find a descriptor of yourself there? Do you believe Jesus can use you? Well, he can. He can use each and every one of us. Even those things of the world that are not. You see, when it comes to God's choice to use someone, he does not make it based upon human reasoning. He doesn't make it based upon how you and I make it. Think about how we make our choices. And think about specifically how we make our choices in in areas like leadership. Well, let's take choosing leaders for an example. 
Most choose to place their confidence in those who say the right things. Have you ever noticed that? The second church I pastored, I had an old farmer there take me aside and mentor and teach and disciple me. And and I was making some statements and I said, well, that's just what they need to hear. And he said, well, the reason you're getting pushback, preacher, is because most people don't want what they need to hear coming out of your mouth. They want to hear what comes out of their mouth coming out of your mouth. Have you ever noticed that? How quick in society, if we hear somebody saying something that we're saying, all of a sudden we go in lock, stock, and barrel. Because we hear our opinion being voiced by them. Think about how we choose our leaders. Not only do we place confidence in those who say the right things, but we tend to place confidence in people who look the part. Have you ever heard that said before? Man, he or she just looks like a what? A winner. As a matter of fact, I think that's what's plaguing our young people today in social media. Everybody on InstaFame looks like a what? A winner. Here's the dirty little secret. They only post on there when they're winning. Which is 99.9% not the case. And we choose our leaders by how they sound and how they look. But do you know God does it differently? God does not choose the way we choose when it comes to using people. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that he knows human words are cheap. They're cheap. Why? Because he knows our words are flippant. Listen to what 2 Timothy 4, 3 teaches us. Paul is talking to a young preacher boy, Timothy, and he even says people in the church house have a problem with their words. How do I know that? Because of me. My experience, maybe your experience, but Paul says, Timothy, here's the case, son. For the time will come when men will not tolerate sound doctrine. But with itching ears, they will gather around themselves teachers to suit their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Church family, I am thankful that you've got a man sitting down here on this pew who's not going to tickle or itch anybody's ears. Why? Because human words are flippant. All the husbands in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. How many of you have caught yourself in midstream in an argument with your wife? You know that tactical pause where she gives you a chance to correct yourself. (laughs) How many of you have ever been in mid-sentence and heard yourself say something and you go, well, that's just not right. And you change your mind in mid-sentence. Human words are cheap. God says also there's a time when human tolerance becomes very low. Isn't it interesting? We live in a society where they say tolerate, tolerate, tolerate everybody but us. Tolerance is low. Isaiah 30.10 says this. They say to the seers, they say to the prophets, stop seeing your visions. Do not prophesy to us the truth. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn off the road. 
rid us of the Holy One of Israel. God doesn't choose leaders the way we choose leaders. Because tolerance is low, words are cheap, but also human judgment is flawed. 1 Samuel 16, 7. You remember the passage, right? Samuel is told by God, Saul's moving off the scene. Go anoint the new king. Go to Jesse's house. Jesse traps out his seven kids, his seven sons that looked the part. And then this is what the Lord says. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as a man does, for man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord sees what? The heart. And why does God operate that way? Well, if you go on down in the passage we read earlier in 1 Corinthians, verse 29 says this, so that no one, not you, not me, not any person that God ever chooses to use, so that no one may boast in his presence. What that simply means is this. He does it that way so that only he can be accredited for any of it in total. So that you and I come to the understanding that it's all God and it's all grace in our lives. Have you learned that? Are you thankful for that lesson? It's all God and it's all grace. And that's the way not only God likes it, He loves it. Now, are you ready to talk about Esther for a moment? I gave you enough time to find Psalms, didn't I, Wade? We see that right there in that book of Esther. There's one text, there's one verse, and we don't have enough time today, but I would challenge you to read it this afternoon. Here's a young woman who, in human estimation, ascended from a know-nothing pedigree. And she was locked into a life and a future as an enslaved people. But God had other plans. He said, Esther, you're going to become queen. Now think about that from this perspective of the world. The world might say, wow, she's a lucky girl. Some others may say, her stars certainly must have aligned. Yet others would say, what a coincidence. But let me ask you, are we to believe that her ascension was merely due to her looks? Nothing deeper than superficial beauty and desirability who would become the object of a pagan king's lust? Do you think it was merely due to happenstance? Or as some would say, she just won the luck of the draw? What about your life? Or like with Esther, do you sense that something else is happening in your life? You don't know quite what it is, but the more you look back, it helps you to look forward. And you've just got a holy itch, so to speak, that God's up to something in your life. You can't put your finger on it yet. You don't really know what to call it. But God, you just sense it. Something's in the wind. That's what you read about in Esther chapter 4. 
Again, for the sake of time, read verses 4 through 17 on your own today. But I'm going to give you one verse of scripture and then share with you some application thoughts. Esther chapter 4 verse 14 in the English Standard Version prepares it and presents it this way. Mordecai's talking to Esther. He's told her about what's coming, about the plan, about the plot. He's talked to her about you're not going to escape it. None of us are going to escape it. And then he uses this phrase or says this, these words to her. And who knows, Esther, mark it down in your Bible. If you don't mind underscoring or underlining in your Bible, highlight it some way. Verse, four, uh, excuse me, verse 14 of chapter 4. Here it is. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now that's some, some crazy wording for a kid that went to the University of Georgia. I just lost some of you right there, didn't I? Claire, you're shaking your head. Oh me, you knew that, Claire. Behave. I'm doing the best I can do with what I got. To me, that just doesn't read right. And you know why? It's because it's one word in the Hebrew language. That phrase for who knows whether you have not come to. It comes from a Hebrew word, hagat, and that is a power-packed word, let me tell you. Some translations you're reading out there may say attained or arrived. But neither, in my humble opinion, neither the phrase or those word choices in English really get to the root word and do it justice. Because the root word is the word nagah, and it paints an amazing picture how does it paint that, Chris? Well, look in other places in the Old Testament where it's used. For instance, in Genesis 3.3, where it says that Eve took the fruit. That's the word. It literally means to reach out to, to touch something. In Genesis 12.17, the Bible uses it describing when God struck Pharaoh. God literally reached out and touched him at that point and that time and plagued him. In Leviticus 5.2-3, the Levitical law forbade the Israelites from touching, nagah, hagat, any unclean thing. Don't look at it, don't go towards it, and don't reach out with the intent of disobedience and touching it. In Genesis 32, 32, remember there someone's wrestling with God? Remember Jacob and his hip? And Jacob says to the angel of the Lord, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And what did the angel do? He reached down and did what? Touched with intent his hip. And for the rest of his life, Jacob remembered that, did he not? Have any of you ever wrestled with God and you still have a little bit of a limp? You say, man, that sounds negative. No, because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt for the rest of your life you've been touched by the Almighty. Amen? God wants to touch your life that way. It may put some stuff out of joint. But your life is going to be so much better for the encounter. Why? Because He wants to use you. He wants to touch you. And probably the most impressive is in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah says, On the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and I saw the, the display of heaven and I heard the angel chorus and, and I, I thought to myself, Woe is me, I'm ruined and undone. 
And the Bible says the Lord sent an angel to the altar, took coals off the altar, and came, and guess what word he used? Touched Isaiah's tongue and said, you're now cleansed. And you know what Isaiah's response automatically was? Hear my God. Send me. Send me. Folks, I want you to know when God touches you, when you've got a little limp in your giddy-up because you come into an encounter with Almighty God, your response will be, Lord, all I can do is go for you. Send me. Have you had a send me moment in your life? These are just questions. But these are questions that will lead you to learning the truth. That like her... You might just be at the beginning of understanding that there's nothing for the child of God that happens to them by chance. Because chance is not a word. And like Isaiah, those of us who have been cleansed by him, have been touched by him, hand selected by him. And just like old Esther, perfectly placed for such a time as this. That's powerful, isn't it? To know that God is working through your situation and circumstances. Reaching out to you with intent. And that the reason you're sitting here this morning, like Wade said earlier, of all the places you could have chosen to be on Sunday morning, God has you right here to hear this message. That's God touching you. And placing you here with intent. You say, does God still do that, Chris? Well, according to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, he did it for his son. Listen to the words there. But when in the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. You see, at the perfect point, at the perfect crossroads in time, God touched his son, so to speak, and placed him there with intent for such a time as that. But did you catch the second part of that verse? Maybe you will want to turn to it and write it down for later. But in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, verse 5 says this, So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive the adoption as what? Sons and daughters. So just follow the logical chain. If God did it for Esther, if God did it for the Old Testament saints, if God did it for the know-nothings through history, if God did it for the all of his son, and now part of his son's job is for you and I to enter into a relationship with Almighty God through adoption to be his sons and daughters, don't you just think it might play through that God has something for you too? That he has touched you with an intent the moment you said yes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit came into your life and signed, sealed, delivered you into the family of God. He says, now boy, now girl, I got something for you to do. I tend to believe that, don't you? The question is, well, what in the world is it? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 answers that question. Listen to what Paul says. He says, you and I were created for that intent listen to the scripture for we are God's workmanship now that again is a poor word in English translation 
It literally means God's masterpiece. Now, what do you know about masterpieces? No one painter's painting ever looks what? Absolutely the same. They're unique. That's what makes them special. And if you look to the person sitting right beside you right now, you may go, hmm, what artist was that? But if you look at them through the eyes of God, you are looking at a masterpiece of God. A unique, special creation. And just like everything that's created unique and special, it has a purpose that it alone is designed to fulfill. And folks, I want you to know this morning, you are God's masterpiece. If you know Jesus, he has created you for a plug and play opportunity that you and you alone might be able to fill. Now, some other may come close. He told Esther, Esther, if you choose not to do this, well, number one, you're going to die. But God's going to raise somebody else up. So you choose. Do you want to obey God and see what God does? Or do you want to die and let somebody else step in and do the job? But you have the choice, Esther. And do you know what her response was? It's so awesome when you read that later today. She says, if I die, I what? I die. If I die, I die. I don't know about you, but that's somebody knowing that they're doing something for a purpose. I work around them every day. When I was in Afghanistan, I lost 15 Marines over there. Why? Because they looked at their brothers and they said, you know what? I'll take Valen today. And if I die, I die. What about you? What about me? You're a masterpiece. And God has prepared you for such a time as this. As this. It was undeniably clear to Esther, and I pray by now it's undeniably clear by you because you're hearing more of God speak to your heart right now than you're hearing my voice. And God is telling you in your heart of heart, in your soul, in your spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's it. This is the time. Your entire life has been leading up to this moment. Are you going to do it? If I die, I die. Sometimes that means dying to yourself, doesn't it? When God's called you to do something in your life, you sit there and you debate. Well, what am I going to have to give up? I'm going to tell you right now, nothing that you're not going to get better. And even if you don't get the better this side of eternity, you're not laying up treasures here on earth where moth and dust and rust corrupt. You're working for eternal dividends. Chris, is God doing that to me? I mean, I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm fighting the what ifs. Do you know what that makes you? Just like Esther. Can you imagine that for a 16-year-old girl? You know what that makes you? That makes you just like me? Who's been walking with the Lord now for 30 some odd years? That makes you just like your pastor? 
That makes you just like any mentor in the faith you've ever had. That makes you just like all of us. But the difference is she did it. She did it. You say, well, where's all this going, Chris? What do I do? I mean, what do I do? For such a time as this, I got it. I'm pretty convinced by now. God has a plan for my life. It's something he's preparing me to do. What is it? Well, I don't know what all it is, but I can tell you one shade of it. Take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What is it? Well, that's where you're going to have to get before the Lord and find out what it with a capital I is. But I can tell you what some of the shades of it are because they're common to us all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, again, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 1 are power-packed. And I'm going to have to, for the sake of time, and trust that you'll go read it later today. But I'm going to do what we talk about in the Navy. When you're briefing an admiral, you give him the bluff. Bottom line, I heard it somewhere, bottom line up front. If you don't give him the bluff, you're giving him something else, right? And he's going to turn around and give you grief. What's the bottom line up front? Here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. How does God want to use each and every one of us? Paul's acting as a modern-day Mordecai right now because this may just be you're for such a time as this moment. This is how you take this message and put feet on it. What do we need to do? Well, look in chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that means to be respectful, reverent, to be obedient to God, we persuade men... That's an inclusive term, men, women, boys, and girls. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciousness. We are not commending ourselves to you, but are giving you on an occasion to be proud of us, though that we will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they might or they who may live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's it. Wade and I went through the same evangelism classes, and for years I thought, it wasn't implied, but I thought I heard them say, the, the reason you go tell somebody about Jesus is because they're lost and dying and going to hell. Well, that's the prognosis. The reason I go to talk to people about Jesus is because of my love life with the Lord. My horizontal bar with fellow human beings is never going to be square if my love life with God, the vertical bar, is not plumb. Can I just be honest with you? 
There are some people I don't care enough about to tell them about Jesus. How do I know that? Because I haven't walked across the street. I haven't walked across the office. I haven't talked to them when we're chewing the fat and talking about my beloved Georgia Bulldogs. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, if I really loved them enough and thought they were dying and going to hell tonight, I would be talking to them, right? But I don't. You know what I found out? It's because my love life with Jesus isn't right at that moment. I don't love the things that he loves. And he loves what? For God so loved that he gave his only that whoever would call upon him should not perish but what? Sometimes just your lostness doesn't motivate me much. But do you know what does? My love life. And if I would just get deep in love with Jesus, it would just come natural. I could stand up here all day long and talk to you about Christy. Do you know why? I mean, you would get sick of me talking about Christy. You would get to a point where you would just say, shut up about Christy. But do you know why I do that? Because it's just an outpouring of what? The relationship. If I never talked about Christy, you'd have reason to doubt the what? The relationship. It just, it's natural. And if you're in love with Jesus, he says right here, you have to have the proper motivation. And when you have the proper motivation, the love for and of Christ in your life, you will fear the Lord and that will lead you to persuade people. And oh, by the way, because they're lost, dying, and going to hell, that gets all ironed out. As a byproduct of you being faithful to the God. That's part of the it. But you also have to develop a proper understanding. Not only do you develop your love life, that's the first thing for such a time as this. Maybe this morning you're saying, you know what, I, got, I need to get a checkup, not from the neck up. I need to get a checkup from the neck down. Where's my heart right now today? A spherical EKG needs to be ran. How, how am I doing? Am I in the right rhythm in my life with God? And once you do that, then it changes your mind. You begin to think differently. You begin to think better. Verses 14 through 15 says that once you develop a proper love life, you'll gain a proper understanding of people. And there will no longer be a Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. You will see them all at once. It doesn't become an either-or. It's a both-and proposition at that moment. Because you reckon that all people need the Lord. Amen? And you're motivated by your love life now to go to them. You'll gain a divine perspective. You'll no longer view anyone in verses 16 through 17 in a worldly way. There's an old story about D.L. Moody, an old preacher back in the day in Chicago. And he got to this, I don't know if the kids still do it or not. My, my daughters tell me, quit trying to be cool. Because half the stuff I say and half the stuff I did came from the 90s or the 80s. or I don't even know. I mean, the kids down here could probably correct me. But did any of you used to remember when they ran around going, loser, loser? You remember that? Some of you are dating yourself. Well, Dwight L. Moody got to it before us because he said when he walked the streets of Chicago, he envisioned every person he encountered having a symbolic L on their forehead. And instead of loser, it stood for lost. 
And do you know how he rectified that situation? He says, well, if every person I meet, unless I know better, has an L on their forehead, I guess i got to do something about it. And we're going to change that L to a W, which stands for one. One to the Lord. And that's how he saw himself living. Why? Because of his love life. Why? Because of his perspective. Why? Because he knew God had placed him in Chicago for such a time as this. And that leads to you taking part in spreading the message. In chapter 18, or excuse me, verse 18, verses 6 through 1, he goes on and very quickly talks about forgiveness being available and that people could be made reconciled to God. Reconciled to God. Now you say, Chris, we've gone from Esther to here to there. There's method in my madness. Hang on. Esther, you have been touched by God for such a time as this. God has placed you with intent at this moment in time. He did it for Jesus, and we were adopted as sons and daughters, which implies he's got a plan for you. You now exist, live, draw breath, and have your being for such a time as this. What is part of that it? It's because God has placed you uniquely in the world in which you live, and you now are in the midst of a set of concentric circles that you and you alone can influence. Here's where it comes to application. You see, Esther was the person placed at that moment inside of those circles of influence, and she had to do her job. Nobody else could go to the king. Do you remember if, the, if I go to the king and, and I'm not called and he doesn't extend to me the golden scepter, then I can be killed on the spot. Well, if I die, I die. Esther was the only person that could walk into the king's court that had a chance of the scepter being extended to her. You may have... The only chance in your concentric circles of influence, family, friends, neighbors, work associates, acquaintances that you meet at Publix every other day. Whatever the situation, circumstances may be, you and only you might have the opportunity for them to extend the scepter. Why? Because they don't know me from Adam. They don't know your pastor from Adam. They don't know this church from Adam. But they know you. And God has placed you in that circle of influence for such a time as this. Why? Because Wade has his own circles. Chris has his own circles. Christy has her own circles. And you have your circle. See, like Esther... We are being called out for such a time as this. The question is, will I do my part in God's rescue mission? Because that's what Esther really embarked upon, a rescue mission. Do you remember that? Esther, you've got to rescue us. You've got to go to the king and tell him what Haman's up to. And we don't stand a chance if you don't do something, Esther. And she said, if I die, I die. And she went in and the king was flabbergasted in the very gallows that were built for her relative Mordecai. Haman found his neck in. Why? Because for such a time as this, she did her job. Wait, I loved it. I, I, I preach in a lot of different places and I hear a lot of anthems and praise and worship 
great. I have nothing against it. But I don't know about you. How many of you just kind of like an old-timey? Like we sang at the beginning today. Do you know what I mean? The these and the dials. I'm glad you left them in there. There used to be another old-timey, and I'm going to read the words for it because you don't want to hear me sing. But this woman who wrote it, I'll get to her name, kind of like Paul Harvey. How many of you remember who that is? The rest of the story, we're going to get there. Explain it to the people under 30. But we're going to get to the rest of the story. But at the age of six, she became blind. Her name was Fanny Crosby. She penned many of the hymns that we sang in our youth. In 1869, Fanny did not allow her blindness to keep her from answering, Hear my God, send me. As a matter of fact, she used it. And the story of Fanny Crosby goes like this. She was inspired in 1869 to write a hymn called Rescue the Perishing. Do you remember singing that? It's a good one, isn't it? But she wrote it because she had just met with some men who were housed in the New York City mission. Just like many people, she was concerned with their spiritual well-being. And she pleaded with those men, every opportunity she got the chance, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. And she used to say this after they sang. She says, who in here has wandered far from his mother's home and teaching?" Well, as the story goes, that night, as the end of the service came about, a young man came up to Crosby, took her by the hand, and said, I sure would like to see my mother, who I know is in heaven. But according to the way that I'm living in this life, that's impossible. The story goes on to say that Fanny says, that's just not going to do. So she called everybody in that mission there who were believers to come around this young man, put their hands on him and pray and plead, Jesus save him, Jesus save him, Jesus save him. And as they pleaded and prayed, the story is just the layers started to peel off of this person and and, and you could just see in his countenance something changed to where he finally fell on his knees, raised his hands toward heaven and said, Jesus save me, Jesus save me, Jesus save me. She went home that night and wrote these words. And if you know them, sing inside them with me. As a matter of fact, would you bow your heads and close your eyes and see that illustration in your mind's eye? And here are the words. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep o'er the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. Though they are slighting him, still he is waiting. Waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. He will forgive them if they only believe. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, 
Feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart. Wakened by kindness. Chords that are broken will vibrate once more. Rescue the perishing. Duty demands it. Strength for thy labor the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way. Patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer a Savior has died. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. And all God's people said... Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.